Boy, things have uh, gotten off to an incredible start on so many different fronts this morning. It really encouraged me, part of the Westside family here, having the opportunity to be out and visit with you guys today. Seeing the family, uh, with those who have just become a part of the fellowship, the, the degree of vulnerability and humility that Roy just demonstrated for us, this is so huge. You know, we all can drift, and we can all lose sight of the gratitude that we need to have for God and what Jesus Christ has done for us, but this is the epitome of humility. When you can see that, you recognize it, and you're willing to endure whatever it may take and all the things that Satan whispers to you about how hard it's going to be to come back, but I'm really proud of you. It's a great, great day today. I know God is pleased as well. You know, we had the uh, opportunity to have our uh, regional last week, which I had a great time with. It uh, maybe a little selfishly motivated. Uh, coming into the kingdom, I think most of you know I was agnostic uh, to the age of 32. And Marty Fuquay was the first minister that was a part of this church that I had the opportunity to preach. And uh, it was a real treat for me just to hear him again in that capacity. Uh, there's two guys that have stood out to me over the years. Marty's one of them. And then uh, how many of you have ever had the opportunity to hear Russ Yule preach? <laughs> Russ and Marty are kind of, you know, they're, they're like tied for me. Two different totally types of preachers. Russ has got to be one of the most eloquent speakers on the face of the planet. So much so, the first time I heard him speak, I wanted to try to figure out what the heck he was doing wasting his time with church. I figured, you know, I mean, all the politicians are out there. He, he just made these guys look like a bunch of quacks in the way that he could engage you, the stories would tell, the power that he preached with. Needless to say, I was a young Christian. I really didn't get the whole grand scheme of things. But I uh, did want to spend a couple minutes here this morning. Uh, oh, there's the monitor. Pull my remote out here, make sure we're all good to go. Oh, back it up. It is Black History Month, right? You know, one of the things I love about this nation in that it does draw attention to situations and people and things that are important. And uh, I think you guys will be uh, rather interested in the uh, gentleman I found uh, this morning, just kind of taking some time to go through the various websites on black history. And it's amazing the different individuals and the accomplishments they have. But this guy kind of strikes home, real close to home here. How many of you know Ralph Bunch? Hey, man, that's awesome. About 10, 15 people here in the group. Guys, he is a, uh, he's from this part of town. He actually was born in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, his family made his way on out here to uh, California. And that California at the time was a little bit more liberal uh, when it came to some of the racial issues you have in different parts of the country. And he ended up going to school at Jefferson High School, uh, right there on the 110 and the uh, 10. And he uh, ended up graduating from UCLA. He's a UCLA alumni. But uh, he really, at Jefferson High School, excelled in athletics, and he graduated at the top of his mostly all-white high school and ended up getting a full ride to UCLA. He began his uh, lifelong love with learning and education at the age of 34 when he received his Ph.D. from Harvard. Oh, yeah, you know, let me put the uh, next slide up there. We're, we're good for that. A little newspaper clipping there. And uh, he continued his studies in international relations, anthropology, and economics postdoctorate student uh, at Northwestern, London School of Economics, Cape Town University in South Africa. This guy's a brainiac. But at the same time, Bunch started to make this transition into politics and government diplomacy. 
1936, he joined Roosevelt's informal black cabinet, counseling the president on minority affairs. In 42 Bunch, both officially joined FDR's administration as chief of the Office of Strategic Services, Colonial Africa Division. And then, this is really kind of wild, with the war nearly over, Ralph Bunch joined the State Department advising on post-war Africa and the Middle East and was a, a key person in the creation of the United Nations, which he served from 1946 to his death in 1971. He founded in 1946 the fledgling United Nations, and what they actually met, was, which was one of probably the most severe tests that they ever come across very, very early on, in that that year was the creation of the Jewish state out of Pakistan, or excuse me, Palestine. And that was in 1947. The Palestinian Arabs, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq attacked the newly proclaimed independent nation of Israel shortly thereafter. And the UN sent Bernadeau and Bunch to mediate the conflict. This ultimately led to the assassination of his partner there, Bernadeau. Bunch took over this seemingly hopeless task of trying to forge some form of peace there with 11 months of ceaseless negotiations culminating in the end of the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. He returned home to a uh, New York ticker tape parade. And this is really, uh, I, I didn't know this. And, you know, my wife will tell you, there's all kinds of inane information floating around in his head when it comes to stuff. But he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950. So he, Bunch became not only a, a hero within the American, African-American community, but a hero throughout the United States. It really was a forerunner of so many that took, this, took the role of stepping in to just the, the, the craziness in so many ways that had taken place throughout this country when it came to race. And, you know, one of the things I love about God, one of the things I love about the church, God's consistent throughout. Now you go back to the very, very beginning and the promises that he made to Abraham. And there was going to be a blessing that would go to who? All nations. And to see that continuity throughout the scriptures culminating in Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, telling us to do what? To go into all nations. And guys, you need to give yourselves a hand because it's amazing when we surrender to Christ, look around. Isn't this what Jesus was talking about? This ain't a white church, it's not a black church, it's not an Asian church, it's God's church. Amen? Getting back to Bunch for a minute, he, he ended up spending the rest of his life serving the United Nations, pursuing the goals of peace and human rights, rising to the Undersecretary General in the United Nations. Bunch went on to lead his support to, or lend his support to the Americans' civil rights movement, speaking out against racial prejudice. And then in 1965 and 1969, he was actually invited back to speak to the graduating classes right here in our home at UCLA, man. So we're going to transition into being a living sacrifice, giving our life away. You know, one of the things I love about these various individuals throughout history is the fervor and the passion that they take on task. You know, with, with Bunch, he very well could have been assassinated as well for the role that he had. We know there's been many greats through history that have. You look at the likes of Martin Luther, uh, so many greats that have had 
their lives threatened because of the stance they take when it comes to, to moral wrongs, societal wrongs, and being willing to engage on that level. But the incredible example that we have that far exceeds them all is what Jesus Christ was willing to do for us personally. You know, as uh, was stated, Jacqueline just celebrated her uh, 50th birthday, which was a lot of fun. She's an absolutely amazing woman. I cannot believe she's 50. She's got the, um, the heart of, uh, well, sometimes it probably falls back into the teen realm, but she's just a lot of fun. She's passionate. She's loving. She's warm. Uh, she doesn't sit by on the sidelines, and it has definitely made my life interesting over the last 30 years. But on a more serious note, just really thinking through what we're talking about here today, we are called to be a living sacrifice. You know, we had the song this morning, Give Myself Away. You know, it's funny, I, I've sang a song a million times, and I think in light of what I'm talking about today, how significant the words were. Give myself away. And the why behind it. And what God calls us to, knowing that we are not our own. Why give yourself totally to God? You know, Romans 12.1, Paul gives us some incredible insight as to the uh, why behind it. You know, when we read Romans 12.1, we hear Paul calls to be a living sacrifice to God. What does that bring to mind? Living sacrifice. What, what does sacrifice generally bring to mind? Is that, I'm not hearing a whole lot of hooting and hollering going on out there this morning. Is sacrifice something that excites us? I can't think of any aspect of my life when it comes to sacrifice that I get excited about. You know, giving up dessert. Because, you know, the, the midsection's kind of expanded a little bit. That doesn't fire me up. Uh, the, the aspect of giving up time to get into the gym, to get in shape. You know, there's, there's a sacrifice in light of all the other things that we do. You know, giving up time to get with other people. Being part of a church that believes in ad- adhering to what God calls us to. Giving of our money. Giving of our time. All of those things. Not necessarily a whole lot of comfort involved, but let's take a look at what Paul says here. And keeping in mind the background, who is Paul? Who was Paul before he became a Christian? I mean, he was a defender of Jewish doctrine. He knew what God was about, or so he thought. He knew how to defend the scriptures, what God had established. In Romans 12, 1, we hear him saying here, after he's made this transition in life, Therefore I urge you, brothers... And sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, we talk about worship, but how often do we think about this aspect of it? This is what God views as worship. Being a living sacrifice. And he's exemplified it for us through Jesus Christ. You know, the sacrifice thing. Why in the world would anyone want to do that? Give their life away as a living sacrifice. You know, I can see maybe giving up an hour or two on a Sunday morning or, you know, uh, there's not a game on. Yes, and I am in mourning, but I don't agree with some of the things I've heard this morning and that the best teams aren't there. The best teams are there. That's why it's a Super Bowl. That's why they're playing. I mean, I look at my Steelers, they had some really bonehead games early on in the season, okay? And then the one that counted, they lost. So, anyway, 
So I am in mourning. The, the black is significant. But you know, when it comes to, again, thank you, maybe I need that for, for other reasons, but anyway. You know, maybe uh, when it comes to the church thing or being a living sacrifice, when I get to the point in time in my life where I'm retired and I have extra time, maybe I'll engage on that level. Maybe then I can volunteer to serve in the church. Or maybe I can see God giving 10% of my income. If I have anything left over after taxes and bills are paid and everything else that goes on in my life, or you know, I can see where, you know, there's those super dedicated types, like a Ken Chow, you know, that have been out there in the mission field. You know, I can see myself maybe later on in life, maybe engaging on something like that for a week or two. You know, it's probably fulfilling serving overseas, right? But offering my body to God as a living sacrifice? Why would any do that? That sounds kind of radical. That's so first century. But you know what, this is exactly what Paul calls us to do in Romans 12, 1. Again, therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, that verse confronts us with a question. Why give yourself totally, completely as a living sacrifice to God? And you know, Paul really gives us the background on this here in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a letter written by Paul to the believers in Rome. Christianity in Rome at the time had been started by Jews who had come to faith during Pentecost and taken Christianity back home with them to Rome. And this is a letter of introduction as well as a declaration of faith. Romans 12.1 begins a major new section of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, what we see throughout those first 11 chapters of Romans is the emphasis on doctrine as an understanding of who we are, who we are called to be as disciples, and what we have in Christ as his followers. Romans 1 through 3 deal with something that, I mean, it's, it's a crazy couple of chapters when you look at the depravity that Paul talks about and where we can go, the things that we engage in when we don't adhere to what God's established, the lostness of humanity, the need for God's intervention. Chapters 3 through 5, they deal with how with, through our faith in Christ, we can stand before God totally, 100%, unequivocally, without a doubt, justified, without guilt. Isn't that a good place to be? Chapter 6 through 8. Freedom that comes through being saved, that's established. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom to become like Christ and the ability to discover God's unconditional, limitless love for each and every one of us. Chapters 9 and 11, addressing the Jews, he shares his concerns for them as how they fit into God's plan along with the Gentiles. You know, that stirred the waters a little bit. But with that, it's chapters 1 through 11, the, 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 that emphasis on doctrine. We need to get back into that book and really embrace and come to a deep understanding as to who we are and what we have in Christ. Versus those chapters in 12 through 16 that focus on the practical matters. Really, Paul transitions through establishing what he was very good at, the law, the doctrine, what God's expectations were. But then in chapter 12, he makes this transition where the focus goes from the doctrine to the practical matters and a call to action. I've got a uh, video here that uh, I'd like to just watch for a moment.
from everything I read in this book, everything I understand about this book, I believe we grossly underestimate God. Like we, we totally don't realize how stunned we are going to be when we first see his face. And I think we, we, we're, we're, we're severely like a misunderstanding it, it, just how serious it is when Jesus Christ gives a command. Like, I, I don't think we get like he sent us, he put us on a mission like you and I, we exist. I'm on this earth on a mission. And I, and I think we miss that. Like, we don't understand how huge that is. For, for Jesus to rise from the grave and to say every ounce of authority that exists is right here. And here's what I'm telling you. I want you to do with your life. Go and make disciples. And so for us to ignore that, to, for us to come to, our, to the end of our lives and, and then come before Almighty God and say, I did not make a single disciple. I, I mean, we got to understand that's a really, really big deal. To know that came out of the mouth of Christ. And that we can't point to any disciples. And, and just to make sure we're all on the same page here. I mean, understand the context of the Great Commission. To understand that Jesus rising from the grave, gathering his followers together on that mountain. And giving this message saying, hey, go, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Do we understand? Do we all agree that he was not talking about just you guys discipling one another? He was saying, you've got to get this message to the whole world. Somehow, I want, I want followers from every nation. You need to get out there. Get this message. Do you understand? I mean, you see the context of when Jesus spoke that. He was saying, reach the people who have not been reached. He was not saying, okay, you group of people, you disciple him, and you guys just make a little circle and disciple each other for years and years and years. He's saying, no, you've got to get this message out there. You've got to reach these people. But I get it. It's, it's hard. It, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, I don't like sharing my faith. I, I like this, this I don't mind. This is easy to me. I'd rather preach. I'd rather write. I'd rather, you know, I don't know, put together sermons counsel people on the golf course you know it's like I, i'll do anything but to go up to a stranger who doesn't know god in our culture where that's just seen as so wrong to push your beliefs on someone else but to, to look at someone in the eyes knowing ahead of time that he's probably going to think that my morals and this idea of one way getting to heaven and, and them needing to trust in Jesus for their salvation is going to be so offensive to them. Knowing that, that Jesus calls people to repent and turn from their ways and to follow him. and so I, Knowing that they're going to be so opposed to that. That's so hard for me to muster up the courage to do that. Because you know I hate being rejected. So I get it. I understand why we don't. I don't like to be rejected. 
I, I don't even, sometimes I don't even know how to start the conversation. Like, how do I get started talking about this? Sometimes I, I get so nervous and so scared. Like, how do I start this? And then I start thinking, okay, what if they start asking me about things that I don't know about? What if they ask me questions that I can't answer? And so all these things. And then above all that, I'm the type of person where I hate conflict. I, I'm, you know, some people, they like to argue. I don't like to argue. It's like, oh, whatever. I don't care. And so the thought of going up to someone, offending them, and then trying to tell them that they need Jesus is not my favorite thing to do. And so I get it. I understand. It's difficult. But God Almighty, like God, my creator, said, go make disciples. So I don't want to sit and make excuses. There are aspects of Christianity a little challenging from time to time. That's why it's called sacrifice. You know, you look at what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us individually. We'll never come close to the real sacrifice that he was willing to endure so we'd have the opportunity to have a relationship with him. And Paul understood this. He understood what an amazing God he worshipped. He understood how incredible Jesus Christ was. It was a thing that turned his life around and gave him true religion, a true relationship with God. You know, what's the, what's the significance with this? Paul understood. 1 Timothy 4 16, we're all pretty familiar with this passage. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. You know, it's amazing. Again, what we have established in Romans, he gives us the doctrine. And then he tells us about what the life needs to look like. Not just look like, the actions involved with engaging a lost world. So in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, in that song we did at the uh, very beginning of the service, Come Thy Fount, you know, there's a a verse there that says we're prone to wander. And we are. And that's what's so awesome about the Scriptures. That's what's awesome about discipleship. We get these reminders. We get this help when it comes to our blind spots so we can re-engage. But really understanding that our doctrine is directly tied to our salvation, our lives. The way we live day to day is directly tied to our salvation. Through his word, God tells us there is no salvation without us living in accordance with what he calls us to. You know, that's what I loved about Marty's lesson last week. You know, and listening to that, that, that God of voice, what is God, or the voice of God, what is God's will? And really understanding that, you know, so many times we try and circumvent it. But the aspects of what's laid out in the Scripture is very clear. There are those moments where there, there isn't the clarity. We see it in the book of Acts. Well, you know, one of the things Marty didn't, ha- didn't hit in the message the other day was there are sometimes we don't know what God's will is until it's in our rearview mirror. And we can definitively tell at that point in time if we were living in accordance with what he established or not. But how, how important is it for us to engage each other? How important is it for us to be involved with the Word and really be there to help each other, encourage each other, spur each other on? If we're not living in accordance with His teaching, His doctrine, 
What does that say about the salvation of our hearers? You know, those watching us. One of the things I am so incredibly grateful for is Bruce T. having come into my life when he did. And the fact that he knew I was going to be a hard case, I guess. You know, I mean, I, my, my arrogance probably was something he picked up very early on and realized it was going to take a while to kind of beat that down. But it was he, the, the effort he put into building that relationship with me and spending that time with me in my gym and my garage, coming out early mornings when he had health issues that really, I don't even know how he got there when I, once I found out about some of the health issues that he had. But he was willing to engage me on that level. And the thing that stood out is the things that he challenged me on, he measured up on. There was this contrast that I hadn't seen anywhere else before. I mean, there's always somebody telling you what to do, right? But how often are people telling you what to do, doing anything that even comes close to what they're telling you to do? And this is what I loved about Bruce. I mean, it was evident in his marriage. It was evident in the relationship that he had with his daughter Lydia at the time. And that won me over. But really asking ourselves, are we living in accordance with Scripture? Do our kids, for those of us that are married, do they see you living your life as a living sacrifice? If not... This is where we've got to be careful. What does it say about hearers without seeing? In 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. People pick up on hypocrisy. That was why I, from the age of 13 to 32, I was agnostic. I felt like there was absolutely no way God could be in charge of this mess. The, 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 these, these high-powered religious leaders calling us to an expectation that they couldn't uphold when it came to money, when it came to sex, when it came to all these things. And I'm thinking, these guys can't do it. How in heaven's name am I going to do it? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even close to being a spiritual giant, let alone anything that even re- resembles spirituality. How can I do it? But the thing that's awesome about God's Word and people that adhere to it, it does work. So today, I want to call you back to what we are devoted, all devoted to, when we surrender to Christ, when we joyfully set, maybe with a, with a twinge of trepidation. I remember being excited and fired up about who I was going to be making my Lord. I didn't know how, what, what that was going to look like through time, which is probably a good thing because I might not have done it. But Jesus is Lord. And a life lived as a living sacrifice to our God is what we've been called to. Because we're called to this, Paul in Romans 12 through 16 builds on this solid doctrine that he establishes in chapter 1 through 11, showing us practically how to live as Christians. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, he establishes our need to commit ourselves totally and completely to God. In chapter, uh, in verse 3, he tells us how to think of ourselves in relationship to God and others. In verses 4 through 21, he spells out how to relate in love to others. All the basics that Jesus established in the Gospels, Paul walks us back through. So the entire chapter is an exposition of the two greatest commandments. To love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So again in Romans 12.1, Paul begins a major new section of the book of Romans explaining why you should give yourself totally to God as a living sacrifice. And what's the why behind it? Preferably that's something that comes right to the forefront of our mind. And if it isn't, don't be all upset or worried about it, because we all drift. I drift. I go through moments in time in my life where I'm not as grateful as I need to be for God, my wife, my kids, my friends. 
But the reason Paul calls us to this is because each and every one of us as baptized disciples of Jesus Christ have experienced God's mercy. And with that, he calls us to give ourselves totally to him. You know, there are two things. First, the motive, and then a description of the commitment follows. The motive for all Christian living is that we have experienced God's mercy in Christ. Amen? Can I get an amen on that, church? We have experienced God's mercy through Christ. In Romans 12, 1 again, I'm going to be beating this to death today. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then New Living Translation, we get a little bit more of an insight to that pleading, or the, the encouragement, the urging that's going on here. And keep in mind, therefore is a bridge. It's taken us back to everything that he's already established in those first 11 chapters. In the NLT, it, re- it reads, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. You know, we talked, I've talked about a little bit here about that therefore and how it links everything together. He closes out chapter 11 and verse 33 with that whole life and doctrine aspect of things here. In verse 33 it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment in his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who's God's discipler? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, Give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. You know, then it follows that our lives belong completely to God. If all things are going to culminate in God's glory, then we must give our lives totally for his glory as a living sacrifice. That therefore relates back to everything Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11. He began by showing that we are hopelessly helplessly lost in sin. And he sums it up in Romans 3.10-12. through 12. It says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And to know that God would send His Son to die for us with this perspective, is amazing. It shows us how badly he wants a relationship with each and every one of us. If this is our true condition outside of Christ, the thing that we all need outside and above and beyond anything else is God's mercy. Paul uses, when he says mercy, he's using a plurality here because the Hebrew word is plural with a singular meaning. God's primary display of mercy to us is at the cross where Christ died for each and every one of us as sinners. But we also experience these manifold mercies of God on a daily basis. Manifold means many, or consisting of, or operating many of one kind, uh, one kind combined. Many times. A great deal of times each day in many ways. I mean, think back about a bad day. We all, we all have those occasionally, right? How many instances where there were things that we did because of things that we were responding to 
that probably fell within the realm of sin. And knowing that God was there through Christ every single one of those situations, every single time, enabling us to stay in his presence. In Lamentations 3, verse 22, there's a verse here that isn't a song that we're very familiar with. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the kind of God we worship. Thankfully, mercy is what God is all about. As Paul says in Romans 11, verse 32, For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them. You know, we all deserve his judgment. And all we can do is cry out to him for for mercy. As we've seen, the riches of God's abundant mercy, they're out there for anybody for the taking. Romans 10, verse 8 reads, But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again... This is a letter. If we go back and we read this in context, what what does God, through the Holy Spirit, establish in the likes of Romans 3 or Romans 6? He lets us know what the wages of sin are. He He lets us know the means of breaking down that wall of sin and how to enter into that right relationship with God through a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we experience where? The waters of baptism. And Paul assumes that his readers here have taken hold of those great mercies in Christ because in Romans 12, 1, what does he call them? He says, brothers, all that have experienced the new birth through the waters of baptism have been born into God's family. And you know, the thing that's funny about Paul, especially when you look at who he was prior to becoming a Christian, he could have demonstrated his authority in this position and just said, you know what, this is what you need to do. You just need to do this because I say so as an apostle. But... What do we see here in Romans 12? It's an urging to give ourselves away. And it's reminiscent for me of Philemon uh, in in, uh, verses 8 through 10 where he basically states here, Although in Christ I can be bold and order you to do what I ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then as Paul, an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And Paul goes on. He's like, dude, you know what? You owe me your very salvation. I'm not going to use that as a trump card. He puts it out there. But he wanted to urge him to get right with his brother. And this is what he's doing here. I mean, his motive was to get us to engage with God. As our older loving brother, Paul is urging us to think about what God has done for us personally. And it gets down to things on a heart level. You know, we, we know there are those instances where we kind of stray into just doing it because we know it's right. And prayerfully, if we do it long enough, we'll, can, we'll get back and engage on that heart level. But motive... An engaged heart is crucial in everything that we do. You know, have you ever had anybody act nicely towards you and, you know, you end up doing what they've asked you to do only to find out that the reason that they were acting nicely was to manipulate you into doing what they had you do? I mean, does that excite you after the fact when you find out there was a motive behind whatever it was they were trying to get you engaged to? I mean, would you say that that person's heart was in the right place? 
No, they were just they were trying to get you to do something. And this is where we've got to be careful. Our motive for giving ourselves over totally to God is crucial. Everett Harrison puts it like this. Whereas the heathen are prone to sacrifice in order to obtain mercy, biblical faith teaches that the divine mercy provides the basis for sacrifice as a fitting response. Gratitude needs to be there in order for us to have the right motive on a heart level. Our great motive is to save disciples for giving ourselves totally to God is that you've experienced that great mercy in Christ. If that's all there was as disciples, shouldn't that be enough? But how many times do we come up with qualifiers? Well, God, if you were to do this, or God, if you answer this prayer, or God, I don't know about this situation, but if you take care of that person, you get rid of them, you do whatever, I'm willing to engage you on this level. Is that what God's looking for? He loves us unconditionally. Why do we put conditions on him? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, we think this through when it comes to the Jews. They got it. They understood what those worships were about. How many hunters do we have in the group?